Welcome to the New Stories Podcast, Season 2. All right, good morning, everybody. I'm really excited about today's conversation on mindfulness. I'm Dr. Rodney Glasgow, head of school at Sandy Spring Friends School, and joined by two colleagues and an alum who, as I thought about, and Joel was saying this this morning, like when we thought about getting this group together to talk about this topic at this time, really exciting. So I want to tell you who's here. I'm joined by Jessica, Shakira, and Joel, and I'm going to have them introduce themselves. And then we're going to jump into this conversation. And I will let our alum go first. We'll give Jessica the first intro. Sure. Thanks, Rodney. Thanks for having me. My name is Jessica Zippin, and I am an alum from Sandy Spring class of 2009. And I currently live in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where I work as a therapist at a K-8 public school. I'm Joel Gunsberg. I'm the lower school counselor here at Sandy Spring Friends School. This is my third year here at the school, but also have a private practice in Bethesda. I've been working in schools for over 20 years at this point. Good morning, everyone. My name is Shakira Rahim. This is my first year here at Sandy Spring Friends School. I am a co-leader of students at the upper school. I also teach a section of African history. I'm a certified yoga instructor and a certified mindfulness instructor through Mindful. And having done some workshops with Shakira, I know especially um, about her practice, thinking about, and to Shakira's point on mindfulness, what's your personal connection to mindfulness? I find mindfulness and connectedness as sort of kindred spirits. So before we jump into what is mindfulness, how did you even come into this conversation in this arena? I can, I'll, I'll start off with that. It's really interesting for me. It's been a part of my spiritual practice, I'd say for all of my life. As a practicing Muslim, taking time, I remember being young <laughs> and I'd wanna go play outside of my mom, call me in, it's time to pray. You know, you're younger being like, for real? But the idea of pausing throughout the day to center yourself and to, to ground yourself. And as a Muslim, that was through calling onto God. But it's interesting because the word for, remembrance or worship in Arabic is dhikr, like to remember, and it also connects to sati in Pali Sanskrit, right? And so here in the West, a lot of our mindfulness practices stem from that influence. And sati means to remember, to recall, or to recollect what is most important. For me, I, I really grew up taking that practice to pause, but I didn't really become conscious of what I was doing until I was much older. And I'm still every day discovering what that means to be able to pause and the revelation that comes with that. Similarly, I grew up with mindfulness as part of my life and upbringing, although I didn't have that language for it at the time. My family is Jewish, but my parents are very spiritual and raised us within a like meditation community. That was just part of like the culture of our family and our extended family as well. I didn't really appreciate it at the time, but I'm really grateful for it now, having that as part of my foundation. And then in college, I actually studied mindfulness from an academic perspective as part of my thesis in psychology. We did a study looking at the connection between mindfulness and creative thinking, then working first in education as a teacher and then entering social work and now working as a therapist. I use mindfulness a lot from a professional perspective as it relates to mental health and also personally as it relates to my own mental health as a, as a practice 
to help me cope and work through challenges in my everyday life. My story is not the, the lifelong journey. Most of my stories start with, I come from the school of hard knocks of, you know, everybody benefits from the practice, talks about how good it is. And I sit in the corner and stay cynical until I, I practice myself. Originally found mindfulness in trying to build something for a course, actually for a lower school, and was looking into how can we bring mindfulness practice for children. When I did a mindfulness MBSR course, a mindfulness-based stress reduction course through Georgetown University, the leader of the course was Paul Jones, who's also in mental health. He's a psychiatrist, and he was... I think it was on day one, I was talking about, oh, this is who I am. I'm here to bring all of these things to students. And he said, you know, at the very end of the day, he said, you know, Joel, it's really noble that you want to do this for other people, but this will never work if you don't find this for yourself. And I found myself at about course number three, not being able to do a body scan. And I found myself falling asleep over and over and over again and went to the, the course instructor. I was like, Paul, what? Like, I don't, I can't do this. I'm not I'm frustrated because, you know, I see all these people and why everybody, you know, it's the people who have the, the spiritual background who are deeply steeped in it that can practice. He said, Joel, you're tired. <laughs> it's a very basic, you're doing too much. And I think from that practice uh, of really just stopping, you know, like I, I spent most of my life living from the principle of you put others first, as selfless as you can be, that's where you're going to find your most happiness. And then including myself into the, yeah, you've got to take care of you too, became part of my story. And it's been brilliant from that. I have done a bunch of other courses and then did a year long training with mindful schools and haven't been implementing some of the stuff that came from that. It's been a, a brilliant journey for me. And again, sometimes starting cynical to have to be proven wrong through through action is, is one of the best ways that I learned. So I loved hearing that. And as I think about for my own self, how did I enter into this concept of mindfulness? I go back to, I'm with Jessica going back to college, but we didn't go to college together. We <laughs> but a generation of college before Jessica's at Harvard and Professor Ellen Langer, who like literally wrote the book on mindfulness. And she's giving this lecture to us in my psychology class. And as she's describing mindfulness, she starts to walk more slowly, talk more intentionally. And then she asks the question, when was the last time you really ate a cookie? And I'm like, oh, I love cookies. I eat cookies all the time. <laughs> but like really, like did you slow down and taste the layers of flavor and feel the texture, hear the sound of it from your inner ear. And then we did it. And I could remember thinking, I've eaten a cookie this may be the first time I've experienced a cookie. And so in that way, you know, I throw out my definition of mindfulness to have y'all complicated. But when I think about what is mindfulness, it's a slowing down and a centering of self and experience. So you can feel all the different layers of what's happening. And the fullness of it is you pick up on all the nuances you may have missed in the rush of your day. So that mindfulness to me always brings about a slowness and intentionality and a hyper-awareness of self and space. But I'm wondering for y'all, how would you define mindfulness for someone who's like, okay, I know this word and it's certainly coming up a lot in our pandemic environment, but what is it really? I can start on this one if that's all right. 
I'm teaching this to pre-K through fifth graders at school. So I go with a really basic definition. I think some of it, it comes from John Kabat-Zinn's definition of what's happening right now, putting focus and attention on what's happening right now, purposeful attention, and meeting that with non-judgment. And I think that's the most important part for me is to separate self from what is happening. And I think that talks a lot about what you're talking about, Rodney, that the slowing down and building that presence of just what is happening right now. And that's what I say to the kids. What is happening right now? Why is it happening? And just understanding. And that's it. Nothing more to to trying to make any purpose out of it. Just what is happening. Yeah, I think that's well said. The presence of awareness going into the senses liberty with curiosity and without judgment. And I think it's really important that you emphasize that because a lot of times when people want to slow down and then they hear their inner dialogue or there's something going on, it's easy to want to judge ourselves or question or critique. And it's really just about accepting what's going on and noticing, right? Engaging the senses. What do I smell? What do I hear? And that really allows us to, it's really interesting because it's, it's challenging because we always want to think ahead or think about what happened before or try to fix something. Yeah, I think between the three of you, I have nothing to add. Excellent explanations. It makes me think this morning as I was driving in, knowing we're having this conversation, I was thinking to folks who don't know mindfulness, who may just observe it or hear about it, even in the way we've just described it, it can almost sound like a mindlessness. Like if I slow down and clear my mind of everything and I'm not thinking about anything at all. But Joel, you hit on something that's making me wanna ask, what are the cognitive benefits of mindfulness? Because you pulled in this purposeful attention where it may look like what we're saying. And I think about Shakira when you led meeting for worship, right? And you invited us to let our minds be clear And some people could say, okay, we're not supposed to think about anything at all. And yet Joel's bringing in this, no, there's a purposeful attention to it. And so what's this tension in mindfulness between sort of going blank and being full at the same time? I think that's a a really important distinction to make. I remember as a kid, when I was told that it was time to meditate, I, I have ADHD and my my brain is like always going everywhere. And as an adult, I've also been diagnosed with OCD. So my brain is like double going everywhere all the time and just spinning and spinning. For a long time, I thought that meant that like I was bad at meditating or I didn't know how I couldn't do it. And I think having this shift towards thinking about mindfulness as not a clearing, but an acceptance has been really, really helpful and liberating to me because there is a a really big difference for me personally in my inner experience of peace between trying to push myself towards some idea of what peace should be or what it might be for somebody else that isn't realistic for me versus the peace that I have really maybe never experienced of allowing my brain to go in the way that it does. And instead of trying to like reject it or push it into some mold that it doesn't fit into just sit with it and to not allow my thoughts to have so much power, but to be able to experience what it's like to live as me as a curious observer rather than like a curator. You know, Rodney, when you were talking about Shakira's leading us in a practice in a staff meeting, you think about, it's been a really long day. 
there's so much going on. As teachers, we've got so much, and educators, we're dealing with unknown things in some ways, but stress levels that I don't think that we've seen. They're really high stress levels. And to walk into, I, it was on the heels of, there was a practice we had done a couple of weeks before, and I know Shakira was eager to get out and do something. And when it was Shakira's moment, just from the lighting to Erica Badu playing, I mean, it was so much thought and time and effort for me to see that kind of set up and then to lead the practice she did. I, there's something that Shakira, I haven't told you this, but there was something she did in that practice where she talked about, let's get aside, let's get it out. Let's do just a cathartic. <sighs> and to hear the, the sound of over 50 adults who are in stress take a sigh together was amazing for me. And it was not only to see it in practice, but to then go, yeah, you know what? I do catch myself sighing a lot. There's a lot of stress finding those moments of, well, I'm going to be more intentional about what I do with this because I know I'm feeling stress. It's okay for me to be feeling stress right now. I need to take a minute and, and I've done some of it with students. That's part of what we go through is that we're, we're constantly, mindfulness is not necessarily, okay, this, this is how you do it. And this is the only way you do it. And I love what Jess was saying too, about us as individuals, it's going to affect us in different ways and how our brain functions and who we are as people. I know for me, our brains are not set up to deal with the world that we have in general between cell phones, all the information and taking in all this stuff and 24 hours of engagement and quick hit, like the quick dopamine hit of, I can watch a quick TikTok video, laugh really loud, and then, okay, now back to reality. And that's where I'm, I may not get some of the, the benefit of, what is it like to walk in nature? What is it like to, to get some of that deep connection? Like I know even just me saying to Shakira, and I don't want to speak for you on this, Shakira, but if I say, Thank you so much. Down to the lighting of your practice, down to the lighting, to the song choice, to everything. It was brilliant that we have that moment. I say that to you, that deep connection is a, that's a deeper dopamine hit for me than watching something on TikTok. I just think when it comes to mindfulness, the more I learn and the more I get engaged with it, I recognize that it's basically just about everything in our lives, really stopping and you have access to slow down that I'm more than my mind, I'm more than my thoughts that, and Rodney, I know that there's going to be a point where we may drop back to the last podcast that you guys did with you, Hayes and Courtney, but I think there's a part you talked about the amygdala, that we're constantly scanning our universe, whether we recognize that we're doing it or not, we're looking for how we are moving into this world and scanning for danger and scanning for comfort. So I think recognizing that and recognizing that we're more than just the way that we interpret our thoughts. Absolutely. I'll add on to that. You started talking brain talk. And so like when we're mindful, we actually engage right, our prefrontal cortex, which is the area that's involved in thinking and planning. And when we think about our brains are one of the most responsive organs to our environment, right? And so the idea that we can kind of tweak our neuroplasticity and it's funny because a lot of times people, when I meditate or when I have mindful practices, because meditation is just one of many, a lot of times I'll meet people or say, I don't know how to clear my mind or I don't know how to do this. And I'm like, there isn't, you don't arrive at a place where you're like, yes, my mind is fully clear. Like our brains were meant to think. 
And so one way that I like to describe it to students is it's kind of like the sky and our thoughts are clouds that come through, right? Like our thoughts come through and when we notice them, just being able to say, oh, that's interesting and notice them go through without hopping on them and, and riding them throughout. And as we keep practicing, we'll realize that our thoughts will become, they will space out a little bit more. And you tend to have longer periods of just being present, but it's impossible <laughs> for us to just have a clear mind for, well, in an infinite amount of time, because that's what our brains are meant to do. But we're able to really develop that ability to just, to pause, to take a deep breath. And it all starts with that first breath. And so if we're able to just take a deep inhale, exhale, and be present in that moment, that's a win. So much to go <laughs> in that conversation. And, and Joel sort of threw down the gauntlet around how does this relate to brain science? And Shakira has jumped us in on that. And y'all also know I'm thinking about learning theorists as I'm hearing this too. But let's stick in the brain science for a minute because Matthew Lieberman writes the book Social in about 2013. And one of the strongest premises of that book is that your brain is the most active actually when, when you feel like it's resting. Your brain never actually rests. When you stop controlling your brain, that's when your brain is doing its work of synthesizing, organizing, structuring, making sense of things, making those connections, firing through those neural pathways that will allow for, as Shakira mentioned, a deeper recall later on. And making that connection to mindfulness and that we normally think that that happens when we're sleeping because we live in this crazy busy world, <laughs> right? Where the only opportunities you have not to actively control your brain is when you're not actively in control of any part of your body. And yet it, it feels like, but correct me if I'm wrong, part of the cognitive tenets of mindfulness is to give our brains more opportunities during the active learning part of our day to synthesize some of the information that it's taken in. And in that way, our students really benefit from mindfulness in every transition between classes or in every moment from big learning to the next big learning to slow down and give your brain a moment to go, whoa, let me make sense of this. Let me connect this to what I've learned before. Let me put some neural pathways down so we can find this again when we need it. Am I right about this? I see the head shaking. <laughs> <laughs> I give space to my friends here too, but I have a lot of thoughts on this. Yeah, that's my understanding is that we need the space, we need balance, and we haven't designed a world that provides that. And yeah, I mean, I think about, I work at this K-8 school now, and it's a public school, and there's a lot of conversation in public school about the role of recess, and mm. should we cut recess? We have all this, this testing that we need to prepare for and the kids are behind because we've had two years of like kind of school and there's a lot of panic around that from the adults personally I think that's the opposite of what we should be doing because like you're saying that's all of the research says that we we need a balance and kids need a balance and if you're going to be doing all this intentional focused cognitive learning, stretching your brain in that way, you have to have these periods of rest and relaxation and incorporation because the goal isn't just to learn. The goal is to thrive with what mm -hmm. we're learning. <laughs> if all we're doing is memorizing and taking in information, but we're miserable, 
what's the point? Are we preparing? Are we preparing children for success in the world if that's what we're telling them, if that's what we're praising them for doing? I, I don't think so. I think we want to prepare them to be whole people. And I think it's both the brain science of this allows us to actually learn better and learn more deeply if we can sit back and take a second and pause and rest mentally and otherwise. And also this important piece of like, whether or not it's good for learning, it's good for our humanity. Right. Makes you think, Jessica, what if we called it something different? Like calling it recess implies that we've somehow stopped doing the work of school, but it's more like an incubation period, a very active <laughs> incubation period, but active in a different way than a classroom would be. And in, and in that way, it serves a great function. You know, I'm thinking about when schools dismiss recess and they take it out of the schedule, learning actually goes down because you miss that incubation period. I agree 100%. And it's funny, I was a little shy when Joel mentioned my <laughs> me leaving meditation. So I was like, I'm not going to talk about it, but I appreciate it, Joel. I think it's not just for students or kids, right? It's for adults. And so I really appreciated when I got the invitation, when you know we had this time as an entire faculty and staff to meet. And it was important. The school decided, you know, I got this invitation, like, hey, hold this space before we get into our professional development. And a lot of people came to me after to say they really appreciate it. But a lot of environments, I think now during the pandemic, people are starting to realize because people are burning out and people are spending more time at home and people are starting to realize the patterns that we have in our work culture where we don't necessarily even give adults that recess or that time right. to pause, to, to sit in silence. And studies show, you know, a lot of the studies on brain activity, they're about like the transfer effects because a lot of us, a lot of studies don't necessarily know what's going on when you're actually meditating, but they can look at the transfer effects after meditation. And so it helps build self-awareness, self-care, empathy, and compassion. And in most environments, we can all say these are things that help us thrive as community. Mm -hmm. And so all of that is important, right? When you're talking about processing and we, and we tend to do that naturally as humans, think of a hard conversation that you might've had or a challenging conversation you have to have, or if you have to see a friend who's sick at the hospital, a lot of times we tend to give ourselves some time to process, or we can see that we need that time. And if we're able to do that more regularly throughout the day for most of our interactions, it, it allows us to be a lot more intentional. Mm. I'm sitting and I'm listening. And, and I know when you brought this up, Rodney, this is my jam, right? Like talking about brain science and getting ready for learning. I know I want to jump out and say a bunch of things. And for me to take a step back and listen, that's difficult because I want to tell you all about what I know. And am mm -hmm. I listening to Jess and Shakira? And I respect not knowing Jess and kind of wanting to hear what she has to say about recess, especially. I have a, a, a deep appreciation for what you're saying. And, and knowing how much I respect Shakira, being able to stop and listen is a big part for me to, okay, pause here, and then I'll get my spot to talk about it. You know, I, I think some great information. When you talk about brain science, I could go on and on and on and on. I think there's a great video for anybody, just a quick eight minute video. Dan Siegel's got a, a brain model with his hand and kind of goes through mm. what different parts of the brain do. I'm not going to go into that because that's not my, my full thing, but I'm going to go backward just a little bit to go forward. And, you know, when you talk about 
recess and needing that moment to recharge. We've done something here at Sandy Spring Friends School in the lower school where we've created a social emotional learning class where once a week, pre-K through fifth grade, we've got students in learning different things and mindfulness is part of that. That's a huge part of what we do. And a lot of that is here are some ways that you can use mindfulness to be present in a classroom. And when I say we go backwards, there's some great work by a guy named Stuart Shanker. He's out of Canada and it's all about self-regulation. And if you look at the framework of brain science and how we get ready, basic thing that we don't want to see as teachers, I'll go really basic. We don't want to see fight, flight, freeze. If we see that, there's no learning happening, no matter what, right? Like, so we've got to keep make sure that limbic system is online, ready to go and comfortable. That comes through relationships, sense of belonging. All those things are important. But Stuart Shanker does a really good job kind of giving five domains that we should be looking at. One, looking at the biological factors that are at play. Do you have a student who has sensory complications? It could be that everything's great, but they don't like loud noises and you've got a loud teacher. How do you play with that? Or maybe it's an uncomfortable seating or too bunchy in a room. I mean, there's a million different biological, maybe they have chapped lips, right? Like whatever, that you've got all those, then you've got the cognitive. So when you talk about neurodiversity, how somebody may go offline in a classroom, if they're not hearing the teacher or not there, that's a big, big part of, you know, or just your basic growth mindset isn't in play yet. And when math hits, I'm terrible at math and fight, flight, freeze. You've got that. Then you've got the emotions. Maybe you got in a huge fight with your family before you came into school, or your friend just told you something on the way in. And emotionally, you get really sad when those things happen. You're not engaged for learning. And then the other thing that you look at is social, basic socialization. Is there issues in those relationships? But a key thing for me that I look at, there's a pro-social domain that Shanker talks about. And I think it goes to the amygdala too. How am I relating to somebody else? So let's say Shakira's had a bad day. She comes in and Shakira and I get together. We talk about mindfulness and what we're going to do and how we're going to help save the world, right? If she comes in and she's in a anxious state or an angry state, and I am picking up on that because I know her energy, what's going on? Is she upset with me? Is it this? Is it that? So you think about all five of those domains. If you look at it and use the analogy of like a thermostat, and I'm a 72, 73 degree guy, those thermostats are constantly running. There's never a moment that you're, okay, I've reached the plateau of happiness and plateau of safety and comfort. So I'm going to show up to school and I'm all good. Each of those things are different. So recess may be really beneficial for somebody, for one person, but it may be a stressor for somebody else. If we think about sense of belonging and we're really digging deep into relationship and making sure that all our students are online, those are things that we should be thinking about. And and when we think about to bring it back to mindfulness, that is mindfulness. If I'm aware of all five of those things, that's where the paradigm, not just shift, but the paradigm revolution happens, right? That if, right. if we have everybody thinking along the same lines, we have to stay regulated. And I think we're more in tune with what it feels like to be dysregulated as humans than we ever have been as educators, mm. as parents, as students. And we continue to see the physical symbolic thing with a mask on or knowing that there's things in the news and there's new things in the news that are really unsafe and brings a lot of discomfort. Mm. 
And you're getting to Joel and, and Shakira and Jessica, one of the sort of foundations of learning theory. According to Vygotsky, right? When Vygotsky and so many others, Dewey and me, would all say that learning is a social endeavor. We've sort of proven that cognitively too through studies and all sorts of things that show that that when you learn, you're actually being social and being socialized at the same time. But Vygotsky would take it even deeper into psychology and say that his theory is learning is such a social and emotional endeavor that when you recall something you learned, you recall who you learned it from and how you felt as you learned it. And I'm making that connection to mindfulness in that mindfulness allows us to, just as you recall, Joel, your time learning from Shakira, you remember the emotions you felt about the learning itself, the emotions you felt about Shakira and the way she set that scene all came up when you recalled the lesson you went through with Shakira. And so I, I wonder what's your advice for teachers when we say social emotional learning of which mindfulness has become a big part and folks seem to feel that that is different from teaching or academic rigor. How do we help folks to marry these two? Because one, in my very humble opinion, <laughs> which we all know is not so humble, <laughs> but one, one is the gateway to the other. If you don't have social emotional learning, you're not actually learning anything. To Jessica's point, you may be recalling or performing but those are different things than having learned something. Mm -hmm. Learning is a deeper endeavor. But talk to me about that connection or the false dichotomy. Let's go that way. How do we stop educators and parents from making, and students for that matter, from making a false dichotomy between social emotional learning and what we would consider academic rigor or traditional classroom learning? Well, it makes me think of like embodied cognition, right? And people are realizing now it's what happens outside, all of that impacts our, our brain and our mind. And so the mind isn't separate from the body. What the body is, is engaging with, that sense of belonging, Joel mentioned the flight, fright, like all of that matters. And I was privileged to go through like an education program, a master of science in education, where we did like the, the foundation was on sense of belonging. And I realized that in, it's interesting because education is one of the, the fields where we don't necessarily have like teachers around the country aren't unified, right? It's not like lawyers where there's like a bar exam or anything. And so for teachers, there's a, a large, diverse group of opinions. But I, I will say it's also my humble opinion <laughs> from my studies that that sense of belonging is essential and people cannot learn in a space if they don't feel safe or they don't feel like they belong. They cannot mm -hmm. engage because we're asking people to challenge their minds to go beyond um, their comfort zone. And they can't do that in a space where they don't feel like they can release those shoulders. For educators, we can think about when we go into work, when, when we have a rough morning, everyone knows the difference between when you had a really great morning and when you had a rough morning and you, you're tripping around, you, have, you can't find your keys <laughs> and you get to work and the impact that that has on your first engagement with a colleague. Mm. And when someone says hi and you're trying to hide or you know, you're able to smile. We can all talk about the idea of just smiling when, when someone smiles at you and you have a rough day, how that makes you feel and the impact that it has. And so for us as adults who've been managing and navigating our emotions for all of these years, the impact that it has for a child, 
one of the things that I do in starting off my classes is, you know, we start off with a, a moment of silence or guided meditation or mindful writing or movement. We try to do something so that people can just settle in and it allows them to just release whatever they came into class with and to mentally prepare for this space. But I think that the same way athletes warm up before <laughs> working mm -hmm. out or musicians warm up, you know, before performing, mm. we, we have to recognize as educators that we have to warm up our minds and our bodies before we embark on this journey of learning with our students and, and really giving them the opportunity to do that and to recognize that it's a process really invites for, this, for this, the messiness of learning. Mm. The same way we want kids to know it's okay to mess up or to make a mistake, or you might get the math problem wrong and you come back to it. I think just introducing it, introducing learning and in our classroom space as part of that life journey is essential. Mm. Yeah, I'm listening to Shakira and, and it's reminding me, and thank you for all that. It's, I think it's really important what you're saying. I think, and I know I referenced this earlier and I was figuring there, there will be a point when I can drop an anchor back to the last podcast that you did with Hayes and Courtney, Rodney, because there was a conversation. If you, if a listener is hearing this, please go back and listen to that. It's a really deep conversation. When you talk about sense of belonging, and I think about the Venn diagram, you all talked about what this feels like for a teacher to have a sense of belonging, and that that will have an impact on the classroom for the student, and that the student has to have a sense of belonging. So, like I think about that. That's those are essential pieces. Then you add in the stress levels of everything else. The one thing that I would say that every single person has in common from parent to student to educator is that the one piece of the Venn diagram that we would all say is that we want the best for the student. We want the student to succeed and be the best that they can be. If we can try and create that sense of belonging, that's really important. You know, when you ask the question of social emotional learning and rigor, like, Rodney, this is why I love you. There's so many people who are broken right now. Stress is a bend, but there are people who are broken because they're not measuring up. They're not doing things the way that they should, or they're not getting into the school that they want to get into. And those are devastating. And not only is it devastating for the person, for the student, but it may be devastating for their family. We look at numbers and maybe the, an educator is not getting the, the numbers from their classroom for whatever reason. Mm. There is so much to like, yes, we have to slow down and we have to teach people how to be able to handle rigor and handle stress. And that's, and without that, you're going to have the, the crisis that we're in. We can have the statement out there that children are in a mental health crisis based on what's going on with the pandemic. Rewind before the pandemic, look at suicide rates that have been going on and they're on the rise throughout the country. I mean, we're just talking about teenagers the amount of students that are just sitting in a classroom, uh, found myself getting emotional. I mean, there is some deep sadness of, I can't do this. Mm. If I can't do this, I'm going to do something else and I'm going to win in a different way. And, mm. and what brings them back in everything that we talk about with social emotional learning, what brings them back is relationship. And if you are the educator, if you are the counselor or the administrator or whoever you are, that becomes our role. I want that responsibility. I, as a person, I take my job really seriously and I want to be in that role of trying to bring back with the social emotional learning class that we have, try to bring in as many different theories as we can. 
because the authenticity of the person, it's not going to, not everybody's going to buy in. So like, if you look at a mindfulness lesson, if I focus on the breathing, that could be great for one person. But if I have another student in the room who's got asthma, that's not going to work very well. So get back to the grounding of how do you use your body instead. And then here's how we do a gratitude practice. I may do a heartfulness practice and recognize I'm asking someone to think about someone who's at home and that maybe somebody's missing a parent because they're at school and we're saying, we're sending you kindness, we're sending you love, we're sending you joy, whatever it is that we do. I may have a student in there who just lost a dog or a cat a week ago and I just sent someone into a fight, flight, freeze in a different way. We have to be so thoughtful as educators and I know we have our own stress and that's where it's you, how do we help each other? And that's why I love that conversation. And Hayes said something in that podcast about, we have to be good interveners. There's a great study that talks about burnout and how mindfulness practice for teachers, because it's such an important role. That's where burnout comes is because teachers are feeling a stress and they, I just don't feel appreciated or I don't feel whatever it may be. I'm going to go ahead and leave this really noble profession. It's a great article about how mindfulness practice can support some of those, those educators. Mm. You guys are bringing up so many good points. I'm <laughs> going to really try to like have this be succinct and make sense. <laughs> I think, Joel, I was also thinking about as soon as you asked that question, Rodney, even though the question was about students, I was thinking about teachers and how important it is for teachers to be taking care of themselves and to be able to regulate because they're steering the ship, right? Like when you're on an airplane and there's turbulence, you look to the flight attendants. And if the flight attendants are calm, then you say, okay, there's turbulence sometimes on airplanes and you stay calm. If you look at the flight attendants and they're panicking, then you're going to panic. And I think that is a helpful metaphor for me to what happens in a classroom, because like you guys are both saying, or all saying, there's a million moments in a day that feel like turbulence to a student, a million. And it could be anything. It could be the scratchiness of the tag in their t-shirt, or it could be the way that somebody looked at them as they passed them their paper. It could be anything, or it could be, it's time for math. And like you said, math is hard for me. And I don't know how to navigate feeling like something's challenging. It could be anything. And for teachers, to be around so many different bodies and brains that are trying to find safety all day, every day. There's so much opportunity to get thrown off by individuals and by the group. It gets loud, it gets chaotic, it gets stressful. And we are relational beings and we take in each other's energy like Rodney, you were talking about earlier. And I think mindfulness for teachers is a great opportunity to practice learning what is yours to take in, what is yours to notice and observe and help mm -hmm. someone process and what is not yours. That's something that I, when I look back at my time as a teacher and I taught kindergarten for a couple of years and I taught first grade, so like little kids, really dysregulated and I loved them. And I would say that I'm like a pretty calm person in general, but I would get really activated a lot of the time because there's just so much going on all the time. And I think if I could have taken the time to prioritize centering myself more, the whole class would have benefited immensely. 
if I could have just in those moments, instead of raising my voice or getting flustered in whatever way that manifested, if I could have demonstrated what it looks like to say, you know what, there's a lot going on right now. I'm going to take a deep breath and I'm not just taking a deep breath to demonstrate that it's important to take a deep breath. I'm taking a deep breath because I need to find calm again. And I'm going to keep taking deep breaths until I find calm again, because that's, what's going to help everybody settle. I think things would have been a lot better. And to my credit, you know, I did that when I remembered to do it. <laughs> it's just much easier said than done. But I'm thinking about that, about what a lifeline that is. And especially in this moment where, as everyone has talked about, there's so much stress and particularly on teachers. Although, you know, if I were in another field, I'm sure I would say that about the professionals in whatever field I was in. But teachers are doing so much right now. Kids are going through so much right now. Parents are going through so much right now. School administrators are going through so much right now. And all of those often end up being put on teachers, all of those anxieties. And it is very scary because a lot of teachers are burning out, understandably. Mm-hmm. That's a real tragedy. And I, I think it's avoidable, but we have to like be willing to pivot our focus. No, this is crucial. This isn't an add-on. This is how we keep doing what we do well and what we do that is really important. And then on another note, thinking about like the brain science, Joel, you had me thinking about, I just recently listened to the book, the book that Bruce Perry, the psychiatrist wrote with Oprah, What Happened to You? And he talks a lot about the neuroscience of trauma and what happens to your brain. And one of the things that I have just been had in the back of my mind ever since is thinking about the the way that the brain takes in information and how the brain is like bottom up, right? Information has to pass through one section of the brain before it gets to the next section. And then when it's cleared, it goes to the next section. And the, the bottom section of the brain is asking, am I safe? Am I safe? Am I safe? Am I safe? And then once that is cleared, we can go to, am I loved and connected? Do I belong? And then once that is cleared, we can go to, can I learn and grow? Mm -hmm. And we're asking kids to be in this learning and growing state. They can't get there unless they feel that they are safe, that they are loved and connected. Mm. And that I think is where mindfulness is such a valuable tool. Because it's a way of giving children that experience and not giving it to them like this is from me to you. And when you leave me, you'll have to come back to get it again. But giving Mm -hmm. them that experience as in like teaching them how to tap into themselves, the Mm -hmm. feeling of being safe, the feeling of being loved and connected and allowing them the opportunity to practice tuning back into those truths for themselves and into the truth that they can learn and grow. But again, not rushing to that step and guiding them in how to get there on their own. Mm. Now, Jessica, when I heard you speaking Dewey, all of a sudden popped into my mind <laughs> about, of course, Dewey, father of progressive education. But what he really talked about was learning has to have a relevance in a real world, real time relevance. And so I could learn algebra or I could learn French, but if it's not relevant to my safety in this moment, I've got to first deal with that. And then I can get to, okay, now I can learn something that may be more abstractly relevant or relevant later in the moment and dealing with the right now. And so it's interesting how learning theory almost sort of overlays this social emotional piece. And of course, learning theorists knew way back before we were doing neuroscience 
that social and emotional were the underpinnings of learning. I'm also thinking about hearing y'all talk on this sort of pandemic reality of everybody's crazy busy, crazy stressed, and feeling what we're naming as these sort of delays, right? Sixth graders are showing up like fourth graders, and ninth graders are showing up like seventh graders, and teachers are trying to recalibrate themselves to almost a different developmental snapshot <laughs> than they've been trained to teach, right, at the level at which they're teaching. And this may be a controversial statement for a head of school, but I said something to an educator the other day as to, you know that all of that is arbitrary. Like we invented fourth grade. Fourth grade is not an evolutionary reality for human existence. <laughs> and so if the sixth graders are shown, <laughs> and I love fourth grade, right? But like, we invented what that is and what that's supposed to look like and what they're supposed to know by when evolutionarily all a 10 year old needs to know is this is the lion don't touch that move mm -hmm. away <laughs> right this is the safe person go to them they will help you and you layer everything else on top of that and i, I relate that to mindfulness because mindfulness reminds us that the context really matters and that the internal is so much more important than the external parameters and gates that we put around our learning, that if we just tune into what's mattering right now in this moment. And so if the sixth graders are showing up like fourth graders, we've got to meet them where they are as opposed to dragging them, right, kicking and screaming two years developmentally ahead in the eight months that we have them. And it may actually change our level of burnout but also change our internal expectations because I think a lot of this anxiety is driven around sort of these external markers of what success looks like. And mindfulness is saying success is a very internally, intrinsically driven type of motivation. And so I leave us almost. <laughs> yes, yes, all of it. <sighs> a lot to still, there's still so much to talk about. I know. I know. <laughs> thinking as you're saying this, I'm like, how much have we spent talking about parents here? Because when you talk about relevance of mindfulness and what Dewey would say, you know, like having a relevant, like why mindfulness? The number one thing I will hear from a parent is I don't have time for that. How, where am I going to fit time for mindfulness? I sound like the jerk when I'm like, yeah, well, you'll get more time when you find more time for mindfulness, right? Like, yep. That sounds rude. <laughs> Another hour long conversation about, you know, what parents are going through, how they can find a relevant practice, not just to be better people or more relaxed, which was oftentimes mindfulness can get weaponized at times, right? Like you should be this and then the judgment, you should be this as parents. But like, if you go back and you say, hey, this is going to help you co-regulate with your kids. This will help you, you know, like the reframe. I think what you're saying, yep, kick down the doors. We created so many things. And how do you continue to dismantle how many things that we think are truth in our mind that are not truth? That, that's not it, right? Like right. you, every day, every single day, I find something new. And in my, hopefully I don't hurt somebody when I find out oh, that was a, a thought that was there. And hopefully I can, I can do better with that in the future. But I think we're, we're constantly looking at that. And not to take over, but I do think that parents, you know, like the parent conversation and how parents fit into this is a major, especially in the lower school, it's a major part of this conversation. 
And of course, they're enacting the, the things that were taught to them, they are using as benchmarks for their children. And so in that way, we've got to deepen the sort of, I'm looking at Shakira on this one, almost like generational trauma, right? Yep. I'm yeah, going to put I'm, you through what I went through. <laughs> and that's the only way you're going to get to where I got. But it's not the only way, though. <laughs> and that reminds me of Res Momenicum's My Grandmother's Hands, right? And he, he writes on, on a lot of that. But, you know, you mentioned like the pandemic. Like, I know I was, I was at home while my son was learning online and the impact that it had on me. And it's funny because I was just meditating the other day on what success looks like for me and redefining that. And I appreciate mm -hmm. your leadership. I feel like whenever we have our meetings, you know, you're always reminding me to think about what I need to pace myself. Mm -hmm. And I'm learning more like my, my triple P's pacing and protecting my peace, you know, <laughs> but <laughs> I, I realized that as I'm doing that more, it's liberating for me that I can, I'm inviting myself to think of all I do as my practice. And so we can be mindful in all that we do. If it's the drive to school, being intentional to say, you know what, I'm gonna just have a few moments of silence. And then I'll ask my son how he's doing. I'll ask him what he needs. You know, in the mornings now I'll ask myself, what do I need today? And sometimes my lips are cracked and I'm like, I need water. <laughs> sometimes I'm like, you know what, I'm gonna need a little bit of, of gentleness and care. What does my heart need today? How do I wanna show up? And just being intentional like that in the morning it impacts my day so that if I'm having that conversation, I say, remember, Shakira, you said you were going to be gentle. This is your time to show up. This is that time. And so for parents, parents can have that conversation. I have that with my son now. And I'm always, I'm shocked by his responses. I'm like, is this child a six? <laughs> <laughs> because they're, you know, we can all, and I ask my students that sometimes, how do you want to show up? Well, I haven't thought about it. And just right. offering that space as a parent, as an adult, in the offering that space for our youth to sit there and say, I have agency over how I want to bring my body, my mind into whatever space. Yeah. Um, it can be so empowering. It can be liberating mm. because it, everything doesn't have to be reactive. And I think that in the pandemic, we found ourselves reacting. People were free. I remember at the beginning, people waiting in two hour long lines at Costco right. trying to get rice. <laughs> right, right, right. And it's like, we were just reacting and responding. And what does it mean to simply like see things happen and kind of slow down. I think of like the matrix, right? Or, you know, just kind of like having control. In many ways, like the more you do it, it, it can be challenging. I know people might be listening and saying, well, what are they talking about? It starts off with just give yourself a minute a day, right? Mm -hmm. To just say, I'm going to slow down and I'm not going to think about anything. And if you feel like you might still think about something, put a timer on and just give yourself that minute to just relax, right. you know, to unclench your shoulders. I used to mm -hmm. clench my teeth. And I used to, I had to go to the doctor because I was giving myself migraines. And I realized now that I don't, now I sleep and my teeth aren't closed. But the other day I was like, dang, I remember I used to do that. And I clenched my teeth just to see. I'm like, that's a lot of effort I was putting into my jaw every night. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's something that's so common, right? A lot of people have to have retainers. And it's like, wow, we hold so much tension in our bodies. Right. And so just the, the opportunity to slow down and say, what am I feeling? Where am I feeling it? How can I lighten that load for myself? It's empowering. And we must give ourselves um, permission to do that because if we don't do it, you know, Resma Menachem talks about a lot of our culture being trauma response. Mm. And, and Ronnie, you mentioned like, you know, we created fourth grade, we created all of this. So let's recreate what it means. Let's redefine what it means right. to be well, what it means to show up in these spaces. And if it means 
I'm going to be three minutes late for the podcast because I'm bringing, you know, bagels for my team for our meeting today. So they can all be, you know, like yeah. finding ways to, to show up and know it's okay. And giving ourselves and each other grace. It goes along. Mm-hmm. You're highlighting Shakira with the pandemic. One of the many gifts of all the tragedies, but one of the many gifts that the pandemic gave us was this universal experience around what it means to be in survival mode right, and trying to survive the world with a longing to experience the world. And if we translate that to school, we often put kids and teachers under survival mode, just get through this curriculum, get to this test, get to this deliverable, and it does not put them in a situation where they can experience the curriculum. And that's a different way of running school. So that mindfulness means coming out of survival mode and into experience mode. And in that way, you encode deeper because you're not on, as Joe mentioned, the amygdala hijack. And you can get to those thresholds of learning that Jessica just mentioned, where your your learning can go from one gateway to the next in your brain deeper and deeper because you're experiencing versus scanning for your own survival. I think if we take anything away from today, it's maybe permission to exhale. to reset the goalposts, right? Because you're in charge of the definition of your own success and to slow down and experience these moments of learning and to allow your students to experience these moments of learning as opposed to focusing on what we need to get through or actually what we need to get to. And so that's a different way of educating. And if there's ever a time to redefine education, it would be right now. (laughs) where we've thrown so many systems already out the door and we keep going, (laughs) wanting to go back to the sense of normalcy. And maybe we need to take this moment to redefine what education looks like so that we can experience it in a different way, more informed by what we know we lost and what we know we most needed when we lost access to in-person education through the pandemic. And the thing that highlighted the most, the thing we heard from parents and students the most was that they missed the social and emotional learning, growth, and access that school gave them. There's no doubt in our minds now that school is first and foremost a social and emotional imperative that allows us to access the academic. All right. <laughs> I'm like, yes. I'm glad this is being recorded. It's <laughs> <laughs> a lot. It's a lot. Thank you. Thank you so much for this, Rodney. Thank you so much for having me. This has been an amazing conversation. It's been so nice to connect with you all. Yes. It's It's one of those that leaves you like, okay, I'm going to go and and change some, I'm going to do something different today than I did yesterday from this conversation. (laughs) I'm really leaving with more questions. (laughs) (laughs) the, The sign of good learning. Well, I'm so thankful for your time and your energy and your expertise and the mindfulness that you gave in this crazy busy world we don't often get to be part of one conversation for an hour and so i'm so glad to have spent this time with y'all and we'll continue to learn and grow with y'all thank you thank you for listening to this week's episode of the new stories podcast 